we get started in Isaiah, but I guess to give you a heads up where we will be is if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 607, the specific chapter that we will be in, Isaiah chapter 46. We're in a series in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. Let me open us in a word of prayer. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that your word is alive. I pray that you would make us alive to receive it. I thank you that your word is quick and powerful. I pray that it would work its power in our life, lives, either as believers, that it would draw us closer to you, or if we are persons who merely are interested in religion and have not confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would make us alive in such a way that we recognize Christ as our only hope of salvation. It's not our, our relationship with you is not based upon what we could do or any of our own perceived merit, but it's solely in the person and the work of Christ. I pray that we glory in who he is, what he's accomplished. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay, so for Isaiah 46, we're taking a step backwards, so this is a good time to again rehearse and do a little bit of review as to where we've been and where we're going. So in this series, chapters 40 to 66, we started off doing the first six chapters, 40, 41, all through 45, and then because of where we were on the Christian calendar, because Palm Sunday was imminent, because Good Friday was... Uh, Five days after that, and then Resurrection Sunday, I skipped ahead to do some chapters that are more fitting with those particular themes. So we went from chapter 45, and we did the five chapters 49 through 53. We did chapter 53 on Good Friday, uh, the most theological description you will ever find in all of the Old Testament, I suppose arguably in all of the Bible describing the significance of Christ's death offered on behalf of his sheep, offered on behalf of his people. So we did those five chapters. Now we've got to go backwards and pick up those three chapters we've skipped over. Chapters 46, 47, and 48. Now because I'm doing it out of sequence, uh, we'll lose a little bit of something because the way Isaiah unfolds his vision, unfolds his prophecy. It is by God's design, and it's with a certain intent. And we've already skipped ahead, and we've seen some of the end of the answer, or the answer to some of the questions that are raised in chapters 46, 47, and 48. We already we have that in our back pocket, uh, if you've been here, or if you're familiar with that passage. But now we're stepping back to look at what Isaiah has to tell us in those three chapters. All of Isaiah, in one sense, if you want to understand it, all of it is an unpacking of God's original promise, his covenant promise, to Abraham. It's found in Genesis chapter 12. There are any, all of Scripture is inspired. All of Scripture is positively delightful, though it sometimes is lost on me. I I wish God had chosen to elaborate on some themes more than he did and less on some themes that he chose to give us very great detail. But it's all profitable and it's by God's design. Genesis chapter 12 is one of those passages that sheds light on all the rest of Scripture. If you want to know what God's doing, one of the ways you will know what God is doing is if you are familiar with the promise that he made to Abram way back in Genesis chapter 12. Because the rest of Scripture is is partly, it's written to unfold that promise to see how God brought it to fulfillment. Isaiah, in particular, unfolds the promise of Genesis chapter 12. I will show you the first three verses. They read like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a wonderful promise of redemption. A wonderful promise of salvation. It starts with Abram. And then 
it extends to, I will make of you a great nation. You only have to go one book past Genesis where this promise is given, and you find out that great nation is the nation of Israel in Exodus. But they don't seem very great to start off. Because in Exodus, we find this great nation in slavery to Egypt. And what we find out is this great nation is, in some sense, only great because they have a great God. They have a great Redeemer. They have a great Deliverer who brings them out of Egypt and out of slavery in spite of all of Pharaoh's uh, evil intent. And they are eventually brought into the promised land. So that's part of the way this promise, this covenant is fulfilled. We find out Israel is that great nation. But Abram is also told, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in some sense, part of the blessing of Abraham, from what Paul writes very clearly, is that by faith, if you are a sinner saved by God's grace through faith, by faith you are a child of Abraham. Abraham believed God, he had faith in God's promise, and God counted it to him as righteousness. When we believe God's promise in Christ, we are credited with righteousness as was Abraham. And so there's at least that fulfillment. But in another sense, what the Old Testament teaches very clearly, what Isaiah specifically teaches, is that God is going to bring blessing to all the nations through Israel. They are the original Jehovah's Witnesses. We think of Jehovah's Witnesses as the church or the building up on Pershing, the kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, and it's a Christian cult. It's a perversion of the Bible's gospel. But the original Jehovah's Witnesses are Israelites. They're the Jews. They are meant to be a priestly nation to all the ends of the earth. In Isaiah, they are the original servant of the Lord that is going to bring the truth of God's gospel and justice to the nations. And Isaiah pictures these nations, the far-off islands and the coastlands, as waiting for God to fulfill that promise. But what we find out in Isaiah chapter 42 at the end is that this promise isn't looking like it's ever going to be fulfilled. Because while Israel is called to be a blessing to the nations, Israel is herself a blind and deaf servant. And Jesus taught, how can the blind lead the blind? How can Israel be a blessing to the nations and reveal the truth of the God who created heavens and earth? How can Israel possibly deliver that message to the nations when she herself doesn't believe it? She has no eyes to see. She has no ears to hear. Her heart is uncircumcised. So we've got a problem. What looks like is meant to be the plan is is impossibly, seems impossibly broken as it is because of Israel's condition at the end of Isaiah chapter 42. So we have this tension and drama building through Isaiah. Those are two words I've used time and again in Isaiah. This, This drama that's building as Isaiah layers... What, what seems to be only increasing the problem. How is God going to bring blessing to the nations when Israel, his chosen servant, is so fatally flawed? The tension is between Israel's sin, which we read all through Isaiah, and God's grace. One of those has to give out. For God to fulfill his promise to Abram, either it will fail because of Israel's sin, or it will succeed because God's grace is greater than Israel's sin. That's the drama of Isaiah. We see this drama resolved in what are known as four servant songs. The Bible doesn't call them servant songs. Going back about a hundred years to some uh, German uh, scholars, they called these servant songs. They're passages of Scripture, 42 49, uh, 50, the end of 52 into 53, where the servant of the Lord is going to bring redemption as was promised Abraham. And the original servant of the Lord is Israel, but they're blind and deaf. And so what we find in Isaiah is that a substitute servant stands in. A substitute servant does what Israel the nation as a servant didn't do. 
This substitute servant is obedient where Israel was disobedient. This substitute servant will resist all temptation where Israel gave in to temptation. This substitute servant will resist all idolatry while Israel gave in to idolatry. This substitute servant will continue to trust in God his Father even though he's stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. Even though he's abandoned and seems all hope is lost, this substitute servant remains resolute that God will deliver this substitute servant. We know this is Christ. We know this is Jesus of Nazareth. It kind of peaks in my favorite chapter of Isaiah, a chapter we've already looked at, but chapter 49, regarding this substitute servant, the Lord, God the Father, says to the servant, to the Messiah, to the Son, He says this, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This stand-in substitute servant who completely, perfectly obeys and trusts himself to his father, not only redeems that blind, deaf servant Israel, but he also becomes salvation to the nations, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. It's a glorious passage of Scripture, chapter 49 and verse 6. Well... In chapters 44 and 45, chapters we've already looked at, but we're going to do 46 this morning, and you need to know what the more immediate context was. In chapters 44 and 45, we see something of how the Lord restores these preserved ones of Israel. How does that How does that take place? What does it look like? How does God unfold this? I'm going to deliver you because you've got a problem. And I'm also going to have my servant bring salvation to the nations. So what does it look like in 44 and 45? There are two points of emphasis from way back when we did those two chapters. Number one, God makes these astounding promises to Israel. This blind, deaf, steeped in sins and transgressions, given over to idolatry. God makes these terrific promises. And it has something to do with there's coming a great reversal. All of your sin that you're mired in, all of the judgment that is going to be brought on you. I've already promised the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to take you away into exile. In spite of what seems to be all this bad news, I promise you there is coming this great reversal. Everything is going to be turned on its head. All of my promises, my good promises of redemption will be fulfilled. God's grace will prevail. God's grace is greater than Israel's sin. That's the first thing we find in chapters 44 and 45. The second thing we find are something about God's methods. And something about God's methods in those two chapters are, I'm going to use Cyrus, a Persian, a pagan Persian, a godless Persian, an idolatrous Persian, he's going to bring some measure of salvation to you and that he will deliver you out of exile from the Babylonians. And it's a picture of something greater the Messiah will do. Now, here's, here's the first takeaway. We love God's promises. We struggle with God's methods. That's just a fact. It was a fact for Israel. Israel rejected against, they didn't like his methods. They love the promises. Who doesn't love a promise? Who doesn't love God works all things together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose? That's a great promise. Same chapter. Therefore, the the struggles, the persecutions you face right now in life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. I like the promise, but what's this about a method about struggling and and affliction and persecution and And still in Romans chapter 8, all day long we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's part of the method. I thought all things worked together for good. That's a great promise. I don't like the method. I don't like the way you are accomplishing your promise. That's the struggle of Israel. That's the struggle of the church. That's the struggle of my life. That's probably, sooner or later, will be the struggle of your life. We've got the promise, but God's methods are not our methods. 
And so that's what's unpacked in chapters 44 and 45. I talked with Ryan this week. We were talking about some of these themes. We're in Isaiah. Uh, his small group is in uh, Hebrews, and we're comparing notes and themes and ideas. He told Ryan watches. He's a movie buff in a sense that I'm not at all. I'm not recommending the movie. I don't know that Ryan would recommend the movie. He said, now, if you watch the movie, don't have mom watch it. Uh, so, but he recommended, well, he talked about a movie called First Reformed. It's a fictional movie. And in the movie uh, First Reformed, there's a fictional character. It's a religious-themed movie. His name is Reverend Ernst Toller. And he makes a statement, a fictional character makes a statement, but it's no less true. It's no less true, which kind of captures this tension between we like the promises, we don't like the methods. Reverend Ernst Toller says, despair is a development of pride so great that it chooses one certitude rather than admit God is more creative than we are. I'll read that again because it took me a couple times. I think the more you read it, the more you realize how true it is. Despair... And Israel in Isaiah often throws up their arms in despair. God's given us these great promises, but God, look at us. Look at what you've pro- look at what's coming. The Babylonians are coming in. We're going to be taken into exile. The very temple of God is going to be destroyed. The treasures of the temple will be taken away. God, and they're despairing. And sometimes the church despairs. Sometimes as a Christian we despair. Despair is a development of pride so great that it chooses one certitude, what we think we know, rather than admit God is more creative than we are. God's methods are more creative than we are. God is not compromising His promises by His methods. God is accomplishing His promises by his methods. It requires faith. It requires confidence. It requires what we found at the end of Isaiah chapter 50. Better to trust God in the darkness than to light your own fire and try to make sense of it all. So, the Lord's accomplishment of these good purposes of salvation will require exposing and purging our idolatries. So again, we're going to revisit a theme of idolatry. It's a theme we've looked at in earlier chapters in 40 through 45. Uh, On one sense, I think it would be easy to say, do we have to talk about idolatry again? In another sense, I would say it's very necessary because our idols are so entrenched. We have cultural idols we can hardly see because we see through our cultural lenses. We don't even recognize them for what they are. And so one of the things Isaiah does is he keeps addressing idols. And every time he brings up the topic of idols, he gives us a new layer of understanding, something we might not have heard or gotten before. In Isaiah, Isaiah has condemned, the Lord has condemned the idols themselves. He's condemned the idol makers. He's condemned people that worship the idols. So all this talk about idols is necessary because our idols are such a part of our lives. One of the thoughts I had, which I never shared when we talked about idols the first time around or the first couple times around, is a thought I had is is I considered this in my own life. Like, why are idols such a problem? Why is it from generation to generation idols are such a problem? You know, I've struggled with idols My parents' generation struggled with idols. My kids will struggle with idols. And the thought crossed my mind that we teach our kids idolatry really well. We teach, I teach my kids idolatry really well. I teach my kids idolatry by the things I say, now this is important. This is on the calendar. It's staying there. We're going to do this. We're committed to this. And sometimes my idolatries expose my lack of allegiance to Christ as Lord and Savior is what it boils down to. I'm very good at teaching idolatry. I wouldn't say that's my purpose and my goal, but by what I prioritize, what, what, by what I say is by my actions, this is important, I'm teaching, I'm passing on my idolatry to my children. So you can wrestle with that and think it through to what, however that works out for you. Uh, I think it's what we do in our fallenness. 
So, chapter 46, we've got obstacles to faith and trust exposed. We're going to start slow. We'll move up much quicker as we uh, pick up through Isaiah 46. So, four obstacles to faith and trust which are exposed in this particular chapter. The first two kind of go together. One obstacle to faith or trust is when we think bad people don't succeed or prosper in life and good people do. When I think that's how God's economy works, and ultimately on an eternal level, that's true. Wicked people do not prosper. Righteous people are rewarded, ultimately. But under the sun, Ecclesiastes, under the sun, one of the prevailing cries against God through all of Scripture is, why are the wicked prospering? God, why don't you bring judgment on those that are so opposed to who you are and your economy and your kingdom? Why do the wicked prosper? Why are the righteous suffering? If I think, if that's my theology, it is an obstacle to faith because God doesn't always reward the righteous right away or the way in which we think. God doesn't always punish the wicked right away or the way in which we think. So those are obstacles to faith. They will be exposed in chapter 46 as they are exposed through much of Isaiah. Two more obstacles to faith. Number one, if you think the difficult circumstances suggest the Lord has self-imposed limits on his power or is less sovereign, that is an obstacle to faith. Now, I've, I've, I've cleaned that up because no Christian would say God is something less than all-powerful. We're Christians. We know something, you know, Darwin's teaching us New City Catechism. We're learning things about truths about God. We would all say God is all-powerful. There is only one all-powerful being. But he may have self-imposed limits on himself. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Isaiah certainly doesn't teach that. Isaiah, if it says, one of the things that makes very plain, very clear, is there are no limits on my power. None whatsoever through Isaiah. If I have that perception that God has self-imposed limits on his sovereignty, his providence, his power, it's an obstacle to faith. But it seems like it creates a new problem. Because we do have injustices in the world, and we do have pain in the world. And we do have tragedy in the world. And am I saying God's responsible? Ultimately, God's the first cause of everything in the universe, though he's not responsible for sin itself. Ultimately, he's responsible for Job's suffering, the cause of Job's suffering. But Satan is the one who afflicted him. But that's an obstacle to faith, because what God wants me to do is, in difficult circumstances, trust me, I still got the power. I haven't relinquished my power. I haven't stepped aside. It's not that I couldn't change your circumstances. God is teaching us lessons in the darkness, Isaiah chapter 50. The second, or the last obstacle to faith and trust is that difficult circumstances indicate the Lord limits the care, the love, and the goodness he has for his people. That God only cares so much. God is only going to deliver so often. God is only so kind. And eventually we can exhaust God's kindness. Either God is limited in power or God is limited in goodness. And what Isaiah makes clear is my power has no limits. My goodness has no boundaries. Those things are both true all of the time. That requires faith. That's what God intends to develop is faith. So based upon that, let's build. Chapter 46, verses 1 and 2 start like this. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So we've got, uh, first of all, the who. We have Bel and we have Nebo. Those are two Babylonian gods, two premier Babylonian gods, two of the most important Babylonian gods, uh, two gods which Babylonian rulers are named after. The Babylonian ruler that took Jerusalem into exile, took the Jews into exile, was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, named after this god, Nebo. The last Babylonian ruler who saw writing on the wall and that very night his kingdom was overthrown was a Babylonian ruler named Belshazzar. Belshazzar, named after this god, Bel. So, 
Isaiah, the Lord is recording a message through Isaiah, something about Babylonian gods. What does he want us to take away? They bow down, they stoop, their burdens, they stoop a second time, they bow down together, they're a burden. What Isaiah wants his people to know that these gods, which may seem so powerful at the time, which may seem so attractive at the time, which you are so devoted to because it seems like everything's going well for Babylon. He says, these are gods that bow down and stoop and they become burdens. That's what he wants his people to know. In the immediate context, the picture is Babylon, which is a rising world power as Isaiah is delivering the message. And Isaiah has told Jerusalem, they're going to take you into captivity. And they are a world power. But there's coming a day where they're not going to be the world power. There's going to be another kingdom. It's going to be Persia. It's going to be Cyrus the Great, which we're reading about in Isaiah. And the Persians are going to come in, and those Babylonians are going to pack up their gods, which become burdens to them, because their gods have no help to offer. Their gods can't deliver them. Their gods have no future for them, because their gods are powerless. That's the immediate context. But in the larger context, what Isaiah wants the Israelites to know is that these gods that are bowing down and stooping and burdens, that's in fulfillment of what he said in chapter 45, verses 22 and 23. If you haven't turned turned back a page, or maybe it's on the same page, it reads like this. The Lord says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth. No, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. The same word bow. Same, same context. There's no chapter break in the way Isaiah wrote his scroll. Every knee will bow. You know what that includes? That not only includes peoples of the earth, it includes all their gods, all of their idolatries, all their religions. Uh, biblical faith, biblical Judeo-Christian faith is not simply our version on the world's religion. All religions of the world, all important people, all deities will bow down and pay allegiance to this God. And... And it starts in this immediate context with Bel and Nebo, the Babylonian gods that seem so powerful. The point, the lesson, the applications kind of has something to do with let's make a deal. If I'd had a lot of time and could have found a short video, I probably would have. But I don't have a lot of time and I couldn't find a short video. But on let's make a deal, I remember it back, well, it's changed over the years. But, but the concept is you can have what you've already won as a prize, or you could have what's behind this curtain or inside that box, and, and people are trying to make a deal. Is this going to be a good deal? You know, am I going to be better off if I if I I go with behind that curtain, or am I better off with what I already know in hand? And, and people, there was one lady, it was about a four-pushing five-minute video. She made three wrong choices in a row. She could have had $10,000, then she could have had $5,000, then she could have had $10,000 again, but every time she was offered a choice, she made the wrong choice. She wound up with a set of towels with a, with a big bill of money printed on them. Uh, it was the wrong choice. That's kind of what, what Isaiah, the Lord, is confronting his people with. You've got a God who makes promises, who declares the end from the beginning, who has no limits to his power, no boundaries to his goodness, and you want to trade down for some Babylonian gods? Let me tell you about those Babylonian gods. They will become a burden to their people. Whatever gods I have in my life, whatever idolatries I have in my life, no matter how fulfilling they seem at the time, and they do seem fulfilling at the time, There are times in life where you are rewarded by your idolatries, but they will be a burden in the end. They will be a burden in the end. I won't look to those idols for deliverance and peace in that day. I better have a relationship with God through Christ in that day. That's the point in the apple. That's what God wants his people to know out of those first two verses. Then in verses 3 to 13, it's driven by three exhortations. We're going to look at all these verses together in just a moment. There are three exhortations, though, that drive everything the rest that the Lord has to say to his people. 
knowing that the Babylonian gods are burdens and are not gods at all. The first exhortation is in verse 3. Listen to me. Listen to me. The second exhortation is in verse 8. Remember this. And then the third exhortation in this passage, verse 12, listen to me. That's a pretty good balance. It takes a lot of listening to remember. I got to hear things more than once so that I remember rightly. How do we listen to God? It's not sitting alone quietly and just clearing your mind and hoping God gives you something out of the blue. You listen to God by exposing yourself to his word. God's spirit uses God's word to expose my idols and to reveal what is what is needs to be remembered is true. The promises of God which do not fail. The promises of God which will never be a burden to me. The methods of God which may be a struggle to me. But I need to know those things. I need to remember those things. So twice he has us listen and once he has us remember. Let me read these verses to you. Verses 3 to 13. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he who makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that's Cyrus, by the way, a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. That's what God wants us to listen to. There's an immediate contrast in verses... uh, in verse 3 and 4, with the first two verses. The idols of Babylon are a burden. But conversely, the Lord says, I'm the one that's born you. I've never asked you to bear bear me. I'm not a burden to you. I'm the one who carries you. I called you from before the womb, and I will bear you even to your old age. God doesn't need us to bear him in life. God doesn't need us to make him relevant to the 21st century. God doesn't need us to do that. God is relevant because he's God. God needs us to trust him with his methods, to trust him in his promises, even when it's difficult. That's what God is calling us to. So there's this great contrast between their gods are a burden... I'm never a burden. In fact, I'm the one who carries you. More on that. We're going to end on that note uh, in a, a very powerful story told by Jay Kessler so far as I have time. Secondly, in verse 5, we've got some familiar questions, questions we've seen in other places in Isaiah. The questions are this, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? These are questions that the Lord commonly asks. Like, I'm the, I'm the only God there is. All other gods are burdens. All other pursuits are, are, are in vain. All other pursuits will leave you empty. I'm the only God there is. Who will you compare me to? We love comparisons. We do it all the time. Every time I sin, I'm making a comparison between this temptation and what God says is true. And as I make that comparison... Very often, I choose what I think is most pleasing, which God forbids me to do. 
Every time I sin, I'm making a comparison, and I say God comes up short. Because right now, in my set of circumstances, with my difficulty, with my uh, whatever this case may be, this makes good sense, and I'm always wrong to not believe God's promises. Sometimes it's not a sinful choice, though. Sometimes I'm making a comparison between a good thing and God. But God has no equal. God doesn't say, when it says, you shall have no other gods before me, R.C. Sproul was the first person that taught me. It doesn't mean you start with the God of Bible and then you stack up all your other gods. That's not what it means. As long as, as, long as the God of Bible is number one, we're good. R.C. Sproul said that's not what it means. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's in my presence. There are no other gods. It's not like you can have your collection so long as I'm number one. There are no other gods. All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink, whether we recreate, whether we, uh, whatever the case may be, we do it to the glory of God. And God gives us many good things to enjoy under the sun. But when the gifts become more important than the giver, we've got an idolatry problem. And it's the state of my heart more than it needs to be, more than it ought to be. Those are the familiar questions. What do we learn about Israel from this passage? What we learn about Israel from this passage are three statements. Verse 8, he calls them, you transgressors. And in verse 12, he says, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. What do we learn about Israel? In spite of God's good promises, what do we learn about Israel? In spite of the fact there is only one God. There's only one deliverer. What do we learn about Israel? They're transgressors, they're stubborn in heart, and they're far from God. That's the drama and the tension. We know how it's resolved in Isaiah 53. We know how it's resolved by the substitute servant. But right now in 46, Isaiah hasn't revealed that to the reader. We still have this sin problem. That's what we learn about Israel. What do we learn about God? In this passage, what we learn about God, I would suggest three things we learn about God. Number one, we learn about his exclusivity. There is no other God like him, no other equal. No other God that that qualifies as God. There is only the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Israel. The God that needs to be proclaimed to the nations because there's salvation found in no other name other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is an exclusive God. That's what we learn all through Isaiah. This is, I've told you before, it's Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. When I've had the opportunity to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, that's where I take them. This God who says there is no other. I'm first and last. I'm beginning and the end. I declare the the former things from the things to come. There is no other God. Now, does that include Jesus? Is Jesus that God? Or is he just a little g-god? Not really a god, because there's only one of those. Or is, in fact, God existing as one being in three persons? So we learn about his exclusivity. Secondly, we learn about his sovereignty. He makes it very clear. Uh, I declare former things, I declare things to come. The significance of every past event that is lost on me plays into God's purpose for for his redemption, his purposes of redemption and judgment. It all fits into God's plan. I don't have to understand it. Uh, J. Vernon McGee is the guy that said, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good. J. Vernon McGee said, it doesn't say we understand all things work together for good. We know it. We know it by faith. God said All things work together for good to those who love God. I may not understand it, but I know it's true because God said it, even when I've got to trust him in the dark. So we learn about his sovereignty. God never says he's imposed limits on what he can do or what he is doing. He is always in control of his creation. And thirdly, what we learn is his redemptive goodness. He will bear his children from out of the womb until the day they lay their gray hair down and gray head down and breathe their last breath. His kindness knows no boundaries. It knows no end. His grace will be sufficient to bring us to Christ. His grace will be sufficient to bring us to Christ in an eternal sense. It knows no boundaries. Perfectly good, perfectly powerful. 
His methods may be a mystery, but his promises will never fail. They will never fall to the ground. What are your comments and questions before I get to Jay Kessler? Rick? I'm sure we share some idols here, but it's also possible that for every person here, we have a different idol. It's a, I mean, uh, John Calvin talked about our hearts are idolatrous factories. We just, we just, the smog that comes out of our hearts that produce idols is, is seemingly without limit. Uh, so, yeah, I think we do share a lot of idols. I mean, one way to to think about it is in terms of identify the idols in our culture, in our country. As you look at the idols in our, what is, what is our culture value? What is our country value? Those can become idols of our heart. They probably have affected us more than we want to realize. Uh, but good point. Somebody else? Comments or questions? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good on time. Since uh, I've got a Jay Burnham or I've got a Jay Kessler thing to show you, based on verses three and four, which I think are such that's a wonderful promise of Scripture. It applies first to the Israelites. When Isaiah said those words, when the Lord said those words, he was thinking of Israel. But certainly, once removed, he's speaking to all all those that know him by faith, all those that believe in him. He's speaking to the church as well. He's speaking to Christians. Listen to me, O church. Listen to me, O Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Uh, Jay Kessler is a man at least well into his 80s. It's kind of odd that I couldn't find uh, specifically when he was born. But uh, Jay Kessler was president of Youth for Christ. Uh, he also was president of Taylor University. He's standing at a podium at Taylor University in Indiana. He was president there twice. He is currently president emeritus. Uh, on this particular occasion, I'm going to play an audio clip. It's a longer audio clip than I typically play. I'll admit that. It's at homecoming. So it's in the fall. And Jay Kessler's come back. This is some years ago. I think his health has failed uh, significantly. I don't think he's speaking anymore in, in situations like this. But some years ago, he spoke at homecoming. And he spoke something uh, about these verses. I would say the promise of these verses. And in doing so, he talks about the lions and the bears. He talks about the lions and the bears that David faced. It's a, it's a phenomenal uh, address at homecoming. The whole thing is probably 25 or 30 minutes. You're not going to have to sit that long. I've whittled it down to, I think, about eight minutes. And some of it is just to, for you to capture the sense of his character, of where his heart is. And then when he makes the point how we serve the God of chapter 46, verses 3 and 4, I think he can speak it in a powerful way because God puts Older people in our lives that we would learn to walk in their steps. People that have walked with God and that they can bear such an influence on you and tell you, I can tell you, it's been difficult. They can tell you, the methods I haven't always understood, but I will also bear witness, my God has never left me. He's never forsaken me. He bears me even in my old age. Jay Kessler is able to do that. He's the author of over 30 books, or roughly 30 books, uh, he's got terrific stories. I listened to a message some years ago, and I, I don't, don't know where it is or if I even have it or could find it. But when he was in college, he and some friends, one of which was Warren Wearsby, uh, they, made a, they made a pact that they would read so much, so many pages, or so, I don't remember exactly how it worked out, to know God better. And they stayed faithful with one another and kept one another accountable for decades of life. You know, the wisdom that a man like Jay Kessler has is because he's walked with God for decades of his life. He didn't wait until the end. Now, God's grace is sufficient for the end. But I would rather profit from God's grace all along the way. So listen to Jay Kessler, and then we'll wrap it up. Dr. Jay Kessler. Jay, welcome. Our 28th president, and now President Emeritus, Dr. Jay Kessler. Jay, welcome. 
Thank you, Gene. And Gene and I certainly appreciate the wonderful courtesies and blessings you've shared on us, both you and Mary Lou, during this time. You try to figure what would be a great text for a Sunday morning at the uh, kind of the uh, kick, uh, wind down of homecoming before you say goodbye and see their license plates disappear down the highway. Uh, what would be the best passage? I've chosen to read 1 Samuel 17, beginning with the 34th verse. You'll all immediately recognize this context and know the story. This is probably among the two or three best-known stories of all the literature of the world, told everywhere by everyone in any country. And it starts this way. It says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock... I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The idea being, David is saying, the same God who was with me in the past and helped me overcome the lion and the bear is with me now, and he will help me now to defeat this giant, this Philistine. The promises of God are laid out in Scripture in the mega-theme, God has been faithful. As Gene read Scripture in the beginning, the faithfulness of God is what we celebrate. God is faithful to us. He is with us now, and that same faithfulness will transfer by the hinge principle in the present into the future. There's a sense in which homecoming is about that. Uh, Homecoming is a time when we say, remember. Probably no word is used more, was used yesterday. If you had a tape recording and could separate you with the CIA and could take all the garble out of all the words spoken over in the football field and over at the soccer match and down in the bowels of Taylor and all the rooms where people met, the one word that would come out most would be remember. Remember. Remember what God has done. We remember, as Paul said, I remember, I thank God every time I remember you. I must have seen 150 people yesterday who immediately when I saw them, I remembered something. I see Arnie Kamen down here. I remember Arnie Kamen going up the steps of Wisconsin Hall. And he had, when he was young, I haven't seen his legs lately, but when he was young, he had legs that if I'd have looked like him, I'd have been All-American. No question about it. He he had to beat girls off with a stick in those days. He was unbelievable. When I saw Arnie, I thought, boy, that's Arnie Cameron. I wanted to be like Arnie Cameron, but my legs, you know, and my little gym shorts hung out like two threads hanging out of the bottom of this pants, and I realized that. But Arnie had it, and I, I did it. Memories. I, Norm Holmescog, I saw him, and he said, Jay, he said, what happened just 50 years ago now? And I said, uh, I was standing in your wedding you're 50 years ago. That 50 years seems like yesterday. First time I went to New Jersey. I didn't know there were Christians there. And uh, <laughs> there I, I went to New Jersey. And Norm, still up in Norm Holmescog's wedding. We remember people, our student years, the great, great people, people who inspired us. A roommate who used to get up and have his devotions while I only said I wanted to have my devotions. And he did it. And it irritated me to death and it convicted me and eventually I learned how to do them and so on. The experiences of our friends together, the experiences on this campus, the, the times we prayed and poured out our souls and found places around the campus where we met the Lord. We need to get off alone with, the God, with God and listen and find a spot. And we remember the lions and the bears. It's very interesting. Lions and bears are not exactly pets. In fact, for a man to stand between a sheep and a lion or a bear is an inordinate, irrational thing to do. But Jesus said the good shepherd gives his life for sheep. David said, I remember... 
the lions and the bears. You've had some lions and bears. Some of you have experienced sicknesses, loss, death of lover. I said to one couple, when we stand there like Norm did at the wedding and pastor says, wilt thou and we wilt and then we live our life. What they don't tell us is one of you always gets to bury the other one. And I talked to a classmate of mine who buried her husband. I see her eyes right now. And uh, there are lions and there are bears out there. There's surgery and chemotherapy. Death of a parent, death of a child, loss. Successes, failures, bankruptcies, disappointments, joys. The interesting thing is, I've been to a few, well, a 70 actually, uh, watch night services. I've never heard a great testimony about a mountaintop. Every great testimony I've heard about is about a valley. What people talk about in the valley is the lions and the bears. The kind of lion or bear that when you meet him, you can taste him in your throat. Fear rises up and you know, I cannot bear this burden alone. I cannot do this. I cannot handle this. Oh, God. And God helps us. We grab the lion by the beard or the bear by the beard. And when he tried to kill the lamb, we... With the Lord's strength, we slew him, and we arrive with these lions and bears we face. We're, we're such individuals here, individualist snowflakes. But each of us have a life, and each of us have experienced our life with God. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Call on me, and I'll answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things that thou knowest not. And so we come to homecoming, and we talk about the lions and the bears. And when we remember the lions and the bears, some of us feel we've got to get off kind of scot-free. We listen to the testimony of an old roommate, or a fellow football player, or a fellow choir member, or someone who we took botany with and we find out that they've been out there meeting lions and bears and they stand up at those little dinners and they say but I want you to know God is faithful God always keeps his promises they're loving each other and they're hugging us and they're saying we've all experienced God's faithfulness God who we met in our youth here at Taylor has been faithful to us and he's with us now and he won't forsake us in the future. God is faithful. With that in mind, turn in your hymnal to 406. And we'll close with Christ the sure and steady anchor. Let's everybody stand.